Yeah, yeah, no, and we hear you loud and clear. Seaman, actually, you call me over for breakfast. Next thing you know, you're on a podcast with your husband. <laughs> Small wonders, huh? It's, these are the <laughs> kind of things that you'll have to do. And she will say, next time, don't invite Deval, please. <laughs> Today, we're speaking to the husband and wife duo who started Goonj, Anshu and Manakshi Gupta. While most Indian listeners will know about Goonj and the phenomenal work they've been doing since 1998, for our global listeners, Goonj is a great mix between the Salvation Army and Red Cross. Okay. Great. And thank you, Anshu and Manakshi. I really, really appreciate everything you clearly have been doing for the country for many, many years, but also for being part of this conversation. I guess just at a high level, the sort of thought about doing this, and I know everyone in the world has a podcast now, but really it was, I'd say about month six or seven during COVID when I was, enough is enough. I need to contact people again who've been part of you know, the journey of giving and development for so many years and just reconnect with them, like just reconnect with old friends. This is hell. So much is going on where, you know, we're not able to cope up. We're not able to help those in need. Everything was hitting us all at once, I think. And so for me, on a personal level, I was like, how can I speak to old friends? How can I do it in a manner where I can see them as well? And let's not just talk about the hell we're going through, but let's talk about like how we started. At a industrial level, you know, we launched the philanthropy forums about 12 years ago. And the goal was to start talking about development with some level of like metrics and things of that nature, more to help newer people into the space, honestly, people who have money (laughs) to realize that this is not as unorganized as they think it is. Like there's metrics, there's goals, there are things that we're sort of moving towards. But I think, unfortunately... I think now all of the conversation has shifted to only those things. And so really for me, it was, and like I said, as thus far, we still do philanthropy forums. And I think they have a role to play, as does impact and metrics and goals. But I think really for this conversation, it was more to bring the human elements of it, because I think it's at the end of the day, that's what drives us all. And so that's really the goal here. It's also to challenge what are the things that are going wrong, because as NGOs, as you all know, and just, you know, people in the development sector, I think at times we like to say everything is going well and it's not. And so, you know, what is going well, what is not going well, what are challenges we faced? And I think what I'm most excited about, and this is the first, but I think we'll have a few more, as I was talking about earlier, a few more husband and wife teams, because I think that's also something, you know, there's Preeti Patkar and Praveen Patkar, there's Neelam and Jacob, there's Suchitra and Vishal from Dream a Dream. There are a few of us idiots, I would say, that do this, including you and myself. And I do think it's important to talk about some of this because, as we were saying, I think it creates angst within the organization, I'm sure, within our families as well. But it's important to have those conversations. And so with that, I think I'm going to start with some of the initial questions and really, again, just how grateful I am to both of you for all the phenomenal work you've been doing over the years and how inspirational you have been to me, to Dasra, and to the sector overall. I really, really mean it. And I'm really excited that other people will hear your stories now. And so I may ask Minakshi, you the first question, which is sort of how it all began. What were you doing beforehand? Did you have a PhD in circular economies? And, or sort of what made the shift happen for you? And then Anshu, I'll have you sort of, you know, respond to that same question. First of all, thank you for inviting us. 
it is a joy and you're right in the pandemic i think we've missed most is to have those one on one conversations to be with friends to just have almost like no agenda conversations as we often talk about that in goods i personally i think of myself more as a heart person than a head person so i will uh, move away from what you're trying to say that i was the brain person i and anshu were both coming from a very i'm a delhi girl for all practical purposes i was born and brought up in delhi and we were going about our lives i was going about my life in a very typical you know have studied my studies in delhi university started to you know, job and life is just going on like that and i have to give credit to anshu for the fact that he was the one who was what you could define as a dreamer between the two of us what happened in my personal journey with kunj is that i got an opportunity of living something beyond like the normal corporate life that i was actually already going on i'd been working in the corporate sector for about 15 years before i kind of full time got into kunj we both come from communication background so i was doing work in the you know pr consultancies i spent about 8 9 years with bbc news as their south asia publicist so it was that normal you know sort of meandering through the corporate world or whatever and then uh, there was a time when anshu said took a call for himself that he wants to do something away from the corporate and he'll talk about that more but for me i so boon started in 1999 and i gave up my job i was with the bbc at that point and i gave it up in about 2003 2004 i think so i was actually in the initial years of boon i was actually in a job and i was you know actually representing bbc news so it was not something that i could have done very openly or very covertly Uh, overtly with boot because i was already representing an organization but it was around 2003 2004 that i felt that i have these two different worlds that i was being a part of one was bbc which is a different one was what anshu was doing with the grassroots work it started off doing in a big way i think by that time we had started working on a few important initiatives it was we had started working on the menstrual hygiene work we were working on disasters we were starting to look at cloth in a bigger way than just something to give so it was kind of evolving in a very very beautiful way as we were going into the villages of india and for me it was a question of there is a possibility of you know looking at the world very very in a new way and i was like as you say you know wide eyed and sort of wondering what's going on and travel to the villages of india when i started working with the teams here that we have in the processing centers it has been a very humbling it's a, it's been a huge journey of learning for me so i've thoroughly enjoyed it in terms of what i have gotten out of it i do not know actually how much i've given to it i think i've gained more from it as a person than i have given to it and i've tried to show up because i often say i ended up being in the front of the line i wasn't like i didn't decide to be a leader i just was there and the line kind of behind me started growing longer and so i had to figure out for myself what kind of a leader would i be how can i show up and i for me it has more been on the service how can i serve the work that is in front of me and that's all this journey has been till now and i'm really grateful 
for everything that I have. We've made amazing friends. We've come to meet people like you, Deval, and many amazing people in the sector who are like the, as they say, you know, in Hollywood or Bollywood, who are the Shah Rukh Khans or the Amitabh Bachchans of the world. So very grateful for this journey. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you, Manakshi. In fact, it's funny. And I also, similar to your journeys, I think even you and I were somewhat similar where I moved here in 99 to start Tasra. She joined four years later. She was like, look, you're crazy. I'm going to continue with my job. I'll go to Harvard Business School. And I think the mistake I made, at least, and I'll say it's a mistake because I was hoping that one can earn and I can do this and not worry about anything else. The mistake, at least I made, and I'm sure, I don't know if you made the same mistake, but I would be sending emails to her. And at the time, my older brother, who was a lawyer in New York, had nothing about great work I was doing, all the fun I was having in the field. And I kept thinking, okay, one brother, you know, I only have one brother, he's a lawyer. You know, my wife, she's a banker. They'll support me. I can do this long term. The issue is my emails clearly were so enticing. I never expected that they would quit their jobs. And both of them did at different times and then be part of the sector. But I clearly understand your story. And, and like you were just saying, Manakshi, I think, and we discussed this at your house over breakfast a few weeks ago as well, is the friends I think we have made are even far more than the Amitabhs or the Shahrukhs. I mean, they are, I will put it, you know, they are at times the true angels of society and just the empathy, the work that they do, how they think about this day in and day out. And that itself is reward enough. And it just so happens that you know, we also get compensated somehow and we also get to do things that we love and be in the community. So, no, I, a lot of what you said really resonates. And Anunchu, I guess with you then, why did you make the shift first and what sort of compelled you to do so? Well, I think there have been, a lot of people know about a lot of stories uh, for sure. And me and Minakshi both come from the average middle-class families of India. I mean, as I always say, India has varieties of middle class and in my opinion mostly i call the middle class when in those days you have your own house almost at the age of retirement or after the retirement and that's how i consider the middle class of those days and with my father and parents traveled a lot because every few years he was transferred so by the time i did my 10 plus 2 i had already changed seven schools so one good big thing happened in life, which we didn't know will help us so much, you know, in this particular work, is that we end up studying in the schools where in the morning a boy comes to deliver milk. And after two hours, the same boy comes, sit next to you and studies with you. And that's a very beautiful thing. That's one of the most beautiful things happened in my life. And maybe with Mini also, because Mini also studied in Central School. Right? And that's how it used to be. So you have the kids of uh, drivers and you have the kids of the officers and they're studying together. Same happened with us. So I came to Delhi. Delhi was a big city. I had never seen so many red lights, so many flyovers, all that uh, in the city of Dehradun. Now Dehradun is a completely different place. We don't recognize that place, you know, the kind of flyovers in the life we have. So it was a big city, footpath, I knew, people on footpath, I didn't know. I had never seen such slums, red lights, largely not seen type, at least in my own cities or wherever I've grown. 
And out here, you see red lights and you see hundreds of people on those red lights. And the moment that traffic stops, a lot of people come, ask for something. So completely, completely new life for me. And because I was doing journalism, I was roaming around a lot on the roads of Old Delhi. And Old Delhi is a completely, completely, completely different world. And it's a, I mean, if you have to learn about life, that is the place. You have the biggest bus stand, biggest railway station, and then you see large number of people coming from all across the country, you know, in search of job, in search of settlement. Then you see them on the slums, on the footpaths. That's how the life starts. So that's what I learned, you know. And then I realized with some incidents, the importance of clothing. That how more people die in winters, not because of cold, because if the cold kills people, even I would have died at the same temperature. So not because of cold, but lack of clothing. How something which is the first visible sign of poverty. And in a country like India, you even decide who are rich, upper caste, lower caste, literate, illiterate, cultured, uncultured, everything on the basis of cloth. How that has remained an absolute non-issue. I mean, even today, after almost 24 years of our work, where we miserably failed, is bringing it in the list of issues. You still have 100, 150 issues from domestic violence to global warming to pandemic to reverse migration to what not in MDGs and SDGs and all across. You will still not find clothing written as a subject, as a development issue. But And you talk about three basic needs, you still say Roti Kaplar Maka. And all this was not known to me in the world, right? Because as you touched upon, there was no PhD in circular economy or development sector or whatever. I didn't know what is NGO all about. Or there is something called NGO. Social sector, social entrepreneurship, all these are very big buzzwords. Some of these are very new words also. So we didn't start to start an NGO. We didn't start to do a lot of social work or create a social enterprise or create business plan. There was no knowledge at all. Completely zero. And the biggest proof of that is that June 98, I left my job. July 98, we started doing this. Registration happened in February 99 because till then we didn't even know that there is something called registration, you know, for such kind of things. And I would say that's very beautiful because we didn't know anything about it. And we didn't have any friend in the sector or we didn't even know that there is a sector. So it was 100% unknown territory for both of us and people who started joining. So it was a completely new journey. Unknown field with unknown people, unknown territory, everything unknown. And that's how every single step we just... Whatever we took, I'm sure we must have made a lot of mistakes, but I don't call those mistakes because those were experiments. Anything which you clear is not a mistake. Anything where you fail, you start calling it a mistake. But that's not a mistake. Okay? You don't take a step by saying, let me make a mistake. No, you take a step. You take a decision. So that's how all this has grown. We started very small with 67 units of personal clothes. 98, we were married for three years. I mean, in... Often in joke, I always say that our hair was you know. So, so, 98, we were married for three years. And 
we said anything which we have not used in the last three years, that means we don't need it. And we used to roam around on a scooter that time. So except ever there was fancy wedding dresses, we were able to take out about 67 units of clothing, shoes, utensil, whatever. And that's how the journey started. Till 2003, we were actually operating from home. Till the time, it happened that two and a half of us, me, Mini, and Urvi, our daughter, we were confined to a small bedroom and everything else in the house became, you know, center for people to stay, volunteers, making posters, or collecting material, sorting. Then in 2003, actually, we moved out. And that's where I'm in the home and the office became a little bit separate. And then now, of course, we are more than 1,000 people and we are we've evolved a little bit, we are learning. I always say that my biggest universities have been the villages of India. From there, we learn. We just don't learn the resilience, right? I mean, often this resilience is a, is a curse here in India because you're too resilient. You don't question, you don't ask, you don't react. Because we're too resilient, right? We've also learned creativity, innovation, resource management, community, how they operate together, how with half a stomach, empty stomach, you can still sing a song and dance. Right? How you are so creative and you, you have so much of a skill. I mean, this is, I often say that this is one country where the farmers who have been able to innovate Seven, eight, nine thousand variety of rice are still called unskilled. Okay, and me and you will just give a lecture for five minutes on agriculture. Will be called skilled, but that's our problem. They are skilled, so there's so much to learn from them. No, no, thank you, Anshu. And again, I think a lot of similarities. Like I said in our own story, we moved also the office out of the house after our eldest was six months old because we realized, okay. We also have to be parents now and we cannot only be NGO leaders. But before that, it was like, it doesn't matter. Everyone, in fact, our first Mumbai-based employee that we brought on, he was staying at a hostel, like one of these working men hostels. He was only 23, 24, so practically a boy, but they have like two-year limits. And so when he had to leave and he was working at a bank before that, then joined us, we're like, just move in with us. (laughs) Like, that's fine. So he actually lived with us. And then when our... Son was born. We're like, okay, Drew, sorry, but we have to. And like an older brother, he was so upset. <laughs> he's like, who is this Ayush? Why was this kid? How come he's kicking me out? And we're like, I'm sorry, Drew. Drew Lakra, who ended up starting and runs Miracle Courier. Yeah. It's a phenomenal organization. And I also appreciate sort of your comment about middle class. And I say that because, and again, both of you, I know, travel quite a bit and have supporters from around the world, including the U.S. And from the U.S. context, at least as it relates to the Indian diaspora, we all, of course, in this day and age know about the tech entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley or the bankers in New York. But a lot of the sort of NRIs or individuals like myself, ABCDs, who were born and brought up there, surprisingly, Houston, Texas was sort of the hub, I would say, in terms of NGOs or sort of development sector emerging from the diaspora. And I say that because Anand and Sonal Shah from India diaspora, born and brought up in Houston, Pratham, the origins of Pratham actually started in Houston. I also grew up in Houston. And 
And I say this just because as it related to the Indian community back in the 70s and 80s, at least, the middle class Indian community was in Houston. The ones who were more successful financially were in Silicon Valley or in New York. And I really do think that the fact that we grew up middle class allowed us, and I say this not just clearly for just us on the call, but I think most of the NGO leaders that we speak about uh, and speak to allowed us to not have sort of the wealth creation as a feeling of obligation. So it wasn't like we have to make this much because our parents gave us this much, so we have to give our kids this much. And then it was like, look, we're doing pretty well. We're as good as when our parents we raised us. So we could make those shifts now. And I think middle class in general is so important because I think in any country or sector, if middle class participation is there, then you have the highest level of people who can come in who are not as attached to certain things. And, and this is not a judgment call. It's just the way we were raised allowed us, to your point, go into the villages, feel at home and be with people because you were with people at school and it wasn't anything different. And I think that's so critical and just also hopefully is inspiring to anyone who's middle class to say, you can do this easier maybe, <laughs> you know, than if you're on opposite sides of the spectrum. But even in the NGO side, I mean, just to your story, I, when I came here in 96, and so I guess my story was a little different where I was born and brought up in Houston, Texas. I would visit family in Mumbai because my parents were from Mumbai every couple of years. And so I think for me, this, I was definitely affected by the stark differences that I saw as a young child of other children growing up in India. And that I was just upset. I was just like, I can't, I don't understand how children who look more like me than most of the children in America are living in such dire circumstances. And we as, you know, my immediate family and my extended family, we're doing absolutely nothing. And that upset me even more. I was like, I, what, like, how can we turn a blind eye? Like, this is just not right. And it just reminds me in 2004, we brought together NGOs from across India, majority of them rural India, that were working with children to do a three-day learning meet, similar to the one that we will all be participating this weekend. And two things. Number one, we brought people, like first time some of them rode the train, first time some of them flew, all of these things. And one of the NGO partners here in Mumbai that was, of course, attending the session works quite heavily in Dharavi. And so we took then the whole court, the NGO leader only took the whole court. And these individuals, for example, that were working with fishermen in Tamil Nadu and Andhra Pradesh, first time they came on a plane. But when they saw Dharavi, they were like, oh, my God, what is this? Like, at least we have space. We have a community. And like you said, they're just once you start unpeeling the onions, so to speak, you just realize how individuals, you know, our citizens of our country, our brothers and sisters are living through just the unthinkable areas and how it's accepted and how we've all accepted it. Again, I mean, even COVID, all of us knew that, you know, informal workers are treated this way or, and this happens, but we didn't until you see it sort of happening in front of you. You're like, how can we just accept this? I mean, actually, I think for the listeners, it'd be great for you to speak a little bit about Gunj. I mean, I think many people know about what you all do, but a little bit about sort of, you know, what are your activities, maybe one or two sort of evolutions or shifts you've made that would that would be fantastic. Okay. Basically asking me to get encompass 25 years or 23 years of work. I'll try. I'll give it a try. So just going back to where Anshu and I started and we started from our own home. It started with the issue of clothing. 
if I was to look back on that journey till now, I think how it's evolved is that, of course, we are looking at clothing as an issue. And as Anshu said, we failed in trying to bring it up, the issue on the development sector. But when we went into the villages of India, and when we started to talk to the people there, we realized that, yes, there was need. Yes, there was an opportunity or an idea to connect, you know, what we had in the cities. There was an abundance of material. This was a phase, I think, in the 2000s, like the first decade of our work. We realized that there was so much of well-being which is coming into the cities. Abundance, well-being, a lot of consumption happening. But there was another part of India which was still struggling for the basic needs, you know, basics of life. So then clothing became like a metaphor of some neglected basic needs. And that's how we started to bring our attention. How can we address those needs and connect these two ends of abundance and scarcity in the cities and villages? How can we build a bridge between these two ends? But when we were traveling in the villages and we were meeting up with people, we also realized that people in the villages of India are still very different from, say, people like us. There is still, I mean, you would still not find any begging in the villages of India, right? And begging is such a common phenomenon in cities like Delhi and all. The red light that I'm talking about, you know, people still are put a lot of value on their dignity their sense of self, their self-respect. We realize that the farmers of India are committing suicide for small loans because they feel so humiliated or they feel so bad that they're not able to pay or to have a, you know somebody to come and take the money from you. Their, their motorcycle outside their homes is such a cause of humiliation. So we realized that whatever we did with the material, we had to move away from the charity model, which is a normal model which is applied to old materials. So we said we have to get this to people, but we have to do it in a way that people feel somewhere enriched or nourished or more dignified, not less. So charity had to be taken off the whole conversation of development. That's where our first realization about bringing dignity into the picture and moving away from charity. And we also, the other thing we realized was about the language of development, which is problematic. Because we realized that people in the cities who were giving us stuff were calling it donation. Although they were taking out the stuff that they need. So we had to kind of look at what was being said or the language and lens of development work in the villages of India, because we had to move it away from charity. The giving of material to these people had to move away from charity. But also the people who were giving stuff, they had to look at their giving in a very different way. We wanted them to look at it in a very authentic way, that this is not donating of your material. This is carding of your material. So our work really happened at two ends of India, of changing mindsets about development work. But also there was a kind of a, the bridge building between these two places happened in our processing centers where stuff from urban India was coming to these processing centers. We were taking out the best stuff out of that, turning it into family kits, basically material, 20, 25 kgs of material going into one family kit, which was meant for the people in the villages of India. Yeah. Sorry, can you just expand a little when you say, like, 
I guess number one, you're saying that there's families across cities of India that have goods that they've used that they don't need any longer in cities in India. I mean, our houses are all small. And so we're giving it to you. Can you give us an example of what are those items that are given to you? And then when you talk about the 25 kgs of material, is it cotton that you're giving like material or textiles? Or is it actually goods that you're giving? And maybe that whole process from end to end a little. Right. So typically in the cities, now we're working in parts of all big metros of India. And in a metro, we kind of look at not just families, we're looking at the city as a comprehensive kind of a ecosystem where anyone who has something to give, we can, can connect with goods. So if you have, if you're a household, you can give pretty much every household material that you have, right from, you know, your clothes, to your bedsheets, to your curtains, to your furniture, to your fans, to your everything, pretty much something that Google accepts. We ask only for one or two things that A, it should be in a usable condition that somebody else can use it. Or if it's not in a usable condition, you give it separately, we try and convert it into something which can be then put into you. So that's another part. But so people contribute, organizations contribute, corporates contribute their you know, office material, even one side use paper that uh, organizations have, people have newspapers. So we kind of look at all kinds of material. It started with clothing, but now it is a huge ecosystem of giving where you're saying everything that urban India has surplus, unusable can be given. Exporters give us their export surplus. FMCG companies give us their excess stock. You know, brands give us their showroom display material. All kinds of material is coming to Goonj and we are channelizing it to rural India. In a, and the processing center then next comes into the picture where all of the stuff that we get from urban India, it goes through very detailed process and it goes into two parts, therefore. Uh, one is processing where whatever can be used as is for rural India is turned into kits, various different kinds of kits. One of them is family kits, which goes to basically looking into a family's needs of any material. So it has clothes, footwear, utensils, any other material that can be put to a family's use. So that becomes like a full family kit of 20-25 kgs. Then there are about, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Ancho, 8 to 10 other different kinds of kits, which could be an Anganwari kit, for an Anganwadi center to have about, for them. In total, there are about 20 different... 20 different kits. There is a, even an office kit for our local partners, our grassroots partners, for their offices to be furnished properly because they normally don't get funds for that kind of furnishing. We have school kits where we furnish, we try and bring in material, we connect with schools in urban India to reach out material to schools in rural India. Their material needs, sports material furniture, pool kits. It is really, these processing centers become a place where urban material is customized and matched with the rural needs. That becomes one big place to take care of how can we closely match it to the needs and how can we make sure that only the best material from urban India goes to them. Then whatever is not usable as is, then goes into the, so it's sorted out, kept separately, it goes into a production line where it's turned into different products. Again, for rural needs, for example, cloth sanitary pads or school bags or, you know, sujnis, which is quilts, which are made out of cloth pieces. Different kind of products 
which is again oriented to rural needs there is a one section of it which also we have a brand called green by goons which is turned into creating some urban products which is you know for urban recycled products product range which is urban lifestyle products that we make so that's the processing part of it and then these kits that i've spoken about these go to different parts of india we have our teams in rural india we have our partner huge partner network of grassroots organization we work with i think in covid it went up to earlier it was about 500 close to 500 organizations in covid it went up to about 700 plus organizations it is a very very extensive network which we work with and this network really becomes and our teams together becomes our uh, eyes and ears and hands and legs to actually help us to customize the material help us to reach to the communities help us to understand their needs all of that happens on throughout the year and then there is a section of work which happens in the disasters whenever there's a disaster now because we have this extensive work in urban and rural india we are able to escalate it very quickly at the time of a disaster to raise resources from one side and deploy resources relief material on the other side so this is just the chain of material that i'm speaking about but in rural india like i was saying we didn't want to give it realizing that people had a lot of sense of dignity we did not want to give this material as charity to people so we said you know we must find a way of connecting to their needs but also to their dignity that's how the initiative cloth for work came up where we said we will connect locally to people ask them for deciding their own issues and then deciding on what solutions do they want to deploy with their own wisdom with their own efforts with their own knowledge of their own ecosystem so it is then the material these kits then become like a nudge they become a facilitator they become like a catalyst in bringing these communities together getting them to look at their own problems and solutions and actually implementing those solutions so it is a very very decentralized very very customized model which is really putting value in the people of india especially in the villages of india saying that you have knowledge you have wisdom about your problems and your solutions you don't need to wait for anyone to come and solve this for you you have the ability to do it so i mean uh, one thing which we often say whenever me and you are okay whatever we end up eating only a few chapatis in a bowl of rice remaining money we actually spend in buying material that's what the entire world does okay. but whenever you talk about the financially weaker segment all of us just talk about need 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 okay and those need are also decided by us we decide what do they need and that is the reason that it happens that in disaster everyone will go even the government will go and give away like 25 kg of rice 50 kg of rice no one is talking about a cooking pan or you must have heard this news in the disaster that so many villages have got water because there is a tanker which goes there every second day stands there for half an hour and then move to next village and in data we have that water is supplied without realizing that they didn't even have a jug to hold water 
I'm not even talking about bucket and drums and all that. So there is acute, acute material poverty. Acute material poverty. And all these new buzzwords like circular economy and all that, we are only talking about repurposing stuff. We are not understanding that material itself is a huge resource because millions and millions of people lack that. Millions and millions of people need that. So it's not about repurposing, it's about reusing. It's about that optimum utilization of something. Okay. So we found, as we say, Aladdin ka chirag mil gaya. You know, it's like Aladdin's chirag with us. India has a traditional strength of barter economy. Fine. That has been our strength. India and many, many other countries, whatever they call it, we call it Shamdan where communities come together, do some good work, you know, all our history says that. So we found this opportunity where we can revive the barter economy. On one side, it is the urban underutilization, underutilized material, or something which was about to go to the landfills, the way it is happening in so many other countries. On the other side, it is the community's wisdom, labor, need, all across. So it is a revival of the barter economy with many new currencies in this case. It also brings a new currency in the market for the development. So I always give this example that you are running maybe a school, say NCLP school, child labor school. You have money to run that school or to provide that midday meal. The approach road for that school is really, really bad. And you have no resources to make it. This is where the parents and the communities and the kids and the teachers come together, make that road, and are also revived in kind. So it takes care of their material needs also. It dignifies the entire act of giving. We give a trouser to someone, go there tomorrow, say it belongs to us, people will say, yes, it is yours. But in our case, people work, you go there tomorrow, say it belongs to us, they'll say it might be yours, but we have earned it. So that language, that narrative is changing. And the most important part is that this entire concept has given the power of decision making to the people for whom the world is making decisions. So me and you will never go and say every village will have a pond, every village will have a road, or every village will have a anganwadi. No. Let people decide. We might feel that they need road, but they know that they need to clean their water body first. So they decide on that, and then they work, and that's how this entire model works. And top of all, when you make it, you maintain it, because there is a, there is a sense of ownership. There is even for a kid with our school kit, there is nothing like sense of entitlement. There is a sense of achievement. Because, because you work in that kitchen garden, you and your parents make sure that the school is clean. And then you receive this kit. No, no, I, I'm reminded at least from the Indian context when we started out and Vineet Rai and I actually spoke about this last season. Right after the Gujarat earthquake, we were actually in Madurai 
setting up Vilgro or Rural Innovations Network, as it was called back then. And Vineet came by train because, as you all know, <laughs> traveled by train 40 hours. And that's how we did things. And I still remember him coming into the room and I was like, Gujarat earthquake, Ahmedabad, this is your flat. You have to go back today. And so luckily his family was safe. And within three days, I, Vineet and my older brother actually went to Kutch and we were driving around and trying to do whatever little we could. I And realized even the surplus that at Buj Airport, so much food was rotting. And it was just sitting there. And then as we started going into villages, certain villages that had relatives from the diaspora had, for each family, 25 different vessels of the same thing. And other villages next to that, or even individuals, unfortunately, in the same village would get zero. And we saw the same with the tsunami when we did a lot of work there, where uh, before at least, and again, you all know this, but more for the listeners, you know, there was a great system that was created for generations of our four or five families shared a fishing boat. And that ensured sort of, again, a sense of community that ensured that people were not overfishing, that ensured lots of different things when the tsunami happened. And this whole view again of like you were saying with the pants of, oh, this is my pant. And I still remember this Dr. Robert something from New Jersey. His name was on a boat because Mm -hmm. every family was given a boat and a fishing net. And all of a sudden, there was a little, literally a traffic jam in the ocean because now instead of four families sharing we used, to say, we used to say Nagapatnam in those days that you have more boats than the fish. Yeah, seriously. You know, because people were actually giving away boats even to the fishing labor who didn't have a business sense of running it. right? But because that becomes a mad rush in the disasters. And to be honest, when you're talking about uh, material lying at the airport or if you remember that Bhuj, that Gandhi Medan or whatever it was, it was just full of clothes. It's also because of certain kind of senseless giving, okay? Because the problem with the donation mindset is we give what we have. We don't give what people need. Gujarat earthquake happened after Odisha cyclone. And people spent money. People had absolutely beautiful intentions. I'm not doubting on intentions of people. But it was important to understand that rice was okay in Odisha. Rice cannot be eaten. People will not eat rice in Kutch. So we are actually wasting money. Or tsunami you just touched upon and I remember we took over about 100 trucks load of uh, undistributed clothing from the government. We work in their go-downs and all that. To One of uh, major work area of Boons is also to work on the disaster wastage. Because every disaster brings a lot of wastage, right? Especially the relief material uh, which comes from all across and it is absolutely inappropriate for those spaces. And I remember while sorting first 100,000 units of out of those 100 trucks, we actually found 1,300 monkey caps. The caps which you need in Kashmir or in Uttarakhand or in Himachal. And people must have spent money on transportation to buying those because the common perception about disaster is that there are people who are victims, give whatever we can without understanding the context of it. And that's what creates a huge amount of pressure on the agencies, you know, on the ground. No, no, exactly. And I mean, again, our work, we saw the same thing where they didn't need 12 pairs of used jeans. They just said, I I need one lungi. It's 200 rupees. 
<laughs> like, don't give me this stuff. Otherwise, Anshu, exactly like you said, you're going to be giving away items, which is just not going to be utilized. And I remember, I'm sure you all remember this as well, of the piles of clothing that was sitting on every single of hamlet, fishing hamlet. And there was, you know, a few children, unfortunately, in those piles of clothing died. They drowned in that clothing because, again, no one, it was not utilized. There was just so much stuff that happened. Unfortunately, even the government aid that came through did it through government channels or panchayats, locally elected officials. But invariably, and I'm sure you saw this as well and continue to see this, that meant the majority party got the goods and we saw distributions happen in front of us. And those who did not vote for that party would get the goods in front of everyone, but then they'd have to give it back. And caste issues, religion issues, all of these things start coming in. And again, it's a disaster. So everyone, just like we've seen in the movies, you fend for yourselves. It's human nature. But then in that process, you end up hoarding and not giving to the communities that actually need it, that are more deprived. And so tell me a little bit about how you work with these community-based organizations, what role they play in the disaster itself, and more importantly, what role do they continue to play or what they were doing even before the disaster happened? Because like you said, Untrue, a lot of us give because there's a disaster and that's fantastic, but a lot of the needs of the community are actually there before even the disaster hit. And it was Prema Gopalan that taught us a lot about this with SSP back then. But, but if you can give a little bit of example of, you know, how do you choose these NGOs? What were they doing before? And what are they doing after the floods, for example, you know, recited? What is their role? And what is Gunja's role as well? Is it just after the disaster you're done? So first comment, Deval, on the implementation part of it, even in the disaster and non-disaster. I think this entire system has also, it has built up auto-correct system or auto-sorting system where the people who need it will come in the queue and do it. Because they have to, all of them need to work and then they receive something. So all the issues you were talking about, you know, the how the often the relief material and all is misused or it goes to many, many more people or the undeserving people, that also happens because there's a huge amount of free distribution. But in our case, it's, it's not free distribution. It's like a whole package where you choose some activity, work on that, and then receive it. So it's like an auto filter. Okay? That's one part, which was very complicated, to be honest, when we started working with the organizations all across the country, because there's completely different way of operating for the last many, many decades or centuries, which is all about free distribution. You know, that material comes, you bring community, put some tables, you know, put some two, three banners, ask some, you know, the, the panchayat leader or the MLAs to come and dispute. Okay? And I start talking in a completely different language that we are the Masihas kind of thing. You know, that's how many things are operating. So this was a completely different model. And we, of course, aligned much better with the institutions who had similar kind of thought process, who were more careful about the dignity of people, which we also have plenty. There are hundreds of beautiful organizations in this space who are very careful about the dignity of people who do not believe in taking all kind of nonsense kind of pictures with people who do not want to call them beneficiaries that way. So that was a beautiful alignment. We aligned much better with the smallest possible institution because they were more open to our Kira, they were more open to, uh, you know, this new way of doing things. 
And when we used to go, now it's a little bit different because now people think it's a proven model. But in the initial few years, we used to tell them that, listen, we just need your blind faith on us for six months. That's a language which we used to say. And we used to say that we will not take away anything from you. We will not interfere in your work. Because we didn't find any organization which actually worked on this issue of clothing because clothing has never been a subject. So we were actually aligning with the institution who work on education, on health, on water, on sanitation, on microfinance, on ride base. Any kind of institution was our partner. Okay? To be honest, we thought that microfinance and ride base institution will never be our partners. That was our perception, you know, because we all come with our own perception. And we found that these are the best possible institution with us because right-based institution has a different kind of image in the community. You know, and many times these institutions do not have resources to stand with people in the time of disasters. When we started working, you know, people started understanding them the different lens. Microfinance institution used to have collectors and out here the collector means money collector. And suddenly this concept came and they had a reason to connect with the community for development work also. So it's very interesting that we didn't find any institution which work on clothing, where the important part is clothing. But because we were, for us also, clothing was just a tool or material was just a tool. But the larger objective was to talk about dignity, talk about development, infrastructure, sanitation, water. So like even in the pandemic time, we were able to repair or make about 300 kilometers of roads just by using these relief kits, as we say, the COVID relief, relief kits. It took a lot of time to, I will not say to convince people. We didn't try to convince people because we were practically doing it. But when people started looking at the results of it and they said, yes, this is also a model. This is a completely, completely different model, but this is there is a model. Because unfortunately, my last point on this is that the uh, huge amount of things happen because of opinion leader, the good and bad both. So if the opinion leader thinks that people do not accept so-called old material, that NGO or that partner will not partner. But that's just one person. That's his or her perception. Or that leader thinks that it is absolutely wrong to speak to women about mensuration way back in 2004-05. Now it is an absolutely open subject. Or someone comes and tells you that Aap to chale jayenge, inke husband humko that you will go away and then we will be beaten up by, by their husband. And these are the actual statements which we heard. So for us, the biggest challenge was to challenge these thoughts and say that let's experiment together, it will work. Now it is a bit different story because more of word of mouth, people have seen it as a proven concept. We are still not very successful with the big institutions. Uh, we have not been able to break uh, myths and perceptions of many such institutions, but a smaller and mid-sized organizations have been able to connect much better with us. And we never interfered. We never asked them to stop their work on education or health. We were just coming up with some new ideas and maybe much bigger resources. 
to do your work. You keep working on water. Right? You can have your check dams. You have money for 10 check dams from a funding agencies, make 10 check dams. We will work with you. We can make 20 of those because there's parallel resource which we are bringing in the game. No, no, thank you, Anshu. And I think a lot of the principles that you all have operated in and your partners, in fact, have really driven the model for the Rebuild India Fund that really for Dasra, which is similar. It doesn't matter if you're doing education or health or, or water or livelihoods. We want to support you. We've supported your partners and really have to be able to do pretty much meet them where they are. They know the community. They know what's happening. How can we give you five-year grants that you don't need to worry about and use it how and where you wish, but you know the need the most. And I think from the business world more, because at least I did one or two years of banking, you all did much more, I think, in the corporate world. There's this confusion, Manakshi, around, oh, but if you focus on too many things, it doesn't work. And NGOs do everything. And how do you have that focus? I guess, how are you able to speak to people when you talk about Goonch of how empowerment and ownership is actually what you're doing. <laughs> and then regardless, so it's actually very strong focus, but then what they do with that empowerment is up to them. I mean, how do you speak to people, I guess, about that? And how do you maintain relationships with these community-based organizations that you all have supported over the years, especially in this day and age where I'm assuming the climate disasters are increasing day by day for these communities? And you're right. I mean, most funding is very focused on certain issues. And we are talking about a more comprehensive, more systemic approach to not just poverty or climate change or inequality. We're try trying to look at something much bigger than a particular issue. We are looking at the, you could call it the underlined aspect of how people respond to any development initiatives. So, for us, it was an understanding of, of course, meeting the funding agencies where they were, you know, in terms of issues and all, because there is a lot of evidence of our work having impact on water or sanitation or on various issues, including disaster response and rehabilitation and circularity. Sometimes because of that wide range of impact points, people tend to sort of get a little bit of confusion about, oh, they're trying to do everything. No, we're not trying to do everything. We're, it is just that when you use, think of material as a tool, it's like having a key, which opens up many locks. And those locks then, you know, it could be anything. It, when we think of material, when we think of the model, it's a, many ways it's a sector agnostic model. It is something which is connecting with people. It is mobilizing people. It is bringing people together to look at their own issues. And those issues keep changing. So poverty keeps changing from place to place. It is multidimensional. It is multi-sectoral. It, it changes its space every in different places. So that's why our work in the outcomes, it's very, it comes out as a varied kind of work. But at the back of it, the entire model is focused on people. It kind of puts uh, material that they center, there are certain guiding principles, there are certain values which drive the entire model. And in terms of saying that how funders, I think we've been very fortunate that from the starting point till date, we've had many institutions, many funders which have come along on this journey with us. 
and they have uh, because the outcomes were there because the evidence of the outcome was there they put their faith into it they believed that okay this model works it was in the initial years i have to say it was a little tough because you know to believe that with material you know imagine with your old stuff of 25 kg of old stuff from a city how will the community build a bridge with no money payment to the community at all so it was very difficult for people to believe but when the outcomes when the evidence of it started emerging and at scale so i remember somebody said you know if it works in say assam how am i to believe that it will work in bihar and that's how goonj has scaled across the country to show that it is not something which is specific to some particular geography or ecosystem or a certain community no it is something which is absolutely happening across and india we often say is can be a great place to look at as a lab for the world if something succeeds at scale in india then it's likely to succeed in any other part of the world because look at the diversity of india so that is what goons model has presented to the world saying that here is a model which is saying material can be deployed as a huge development resource and dignity needs to be built into the development paradigm it is a thing which needs to be built into the development paradigm and it can yield if you look at the people for whom we are trying to solve the problem as the not just the part of the problem but also as people who have a stake in solving the problem then the entire equation just changes that's what good has been trying to present an evidence for our work is to bring these kind of experiments and create evidence in different pockets so that more and more institution more and more people get inspired and they do it in their own work you know because this is a new way of working that's what we feel and that is the reason that we are not confined to a particular geography okay i know that as an institution we would have made maybe a larger impact in the life of maybe a few more million people or few more lakh people if we were confined to a geography but the whole idea is this the scale of the idea not the scale of the organization and i think at least for the listeners here you know for those of you at least who are grant makers i think it's really important to keep reminding yourself that if you're making the decision uh sitting wherever you are it could be mumbai it could be delhi it could be new york even you don't know what the actual problems are and the problems when actually like you were saying changes every year if not every 6 months if not every month as we've learned with covid and so i think having that trust having that sort of sense of we stand with you and you like you were saying is so so critical where do you see sort of the future for gunj like you were saying minakshi you have uh, replicated the program in different places in india and things are just so diverse in our country you know we've seen even on the for profit world if you can see succeed in india you can succeed others and india inc has demonstrated that over the last 20 years where do you see sort of gunj's growth and what's exciting to you given that you've been doing this for so long I think for us at Goonj there are two three things which we are trying to do and answer please jump in one we are trying to think of how can the idea be replicated on a bigger scale because we realize the idea has potential not just in india because it's about material and the world is kind of struggling with waste and our surplus material textile waste and you know smcgs 
companies saying, what do we do with so much of people using and throwing stuff and all of that? Whereas there is a, another population, poverty is still the first SDG, you know. So there is that connection which can be drawn between the material that is surplus to the world and the issues that are bothering, you know, all the SDGs. And Goonch model is a very, very doable. It has evidence that it can be implemented in other parts of the world and to solve big issues. And the third is, of course, I think Anshu and I both have pressed multiple times the concern for the development sector being seen as, you know, to empower the development sector, to look at how are the sector's contribution to the society is not undermined or it is at least acknowledged and respected so that more people would want to become part of development work. We do need in India and in the entire world, I think we need more people to come into development work, looking at it as something very respectful, very sort of important work to do, something fun, something you know, really useful and meaningful, satisfying work. So for me, those two, three things are very, very important that we want to move ahead with. So for Goonch, we call it Goon 3.0. And because 2.0 was our, when we started working extensively in disaster in 2008, 98 to 2008. And then, you know, this, this particular phase, I think it started in 2018, 19, um, where we started talking about Goon 3.0 and we said 3.0 is all about replication and copy. We just need to make our copy of the idea so easy that people just read about it, look at the things, come to the centers and say, oh, it's so easy. I can also do it. You know? And how do we, a simple example is that if you want to work on this idea, why are you dependent on Delhi or Mumbai or something? Why can't your nearby city or nearby place really work with you to replicate this idea? So that's the whole work which we are now uh, trying to do. And also a much deeper journey they will, which we call Gram Swabhiman. That's the second deeper journey for us because we thought we are learning in this process and now the time has come that we go to the grassroots and change the narrative of people about themselves. So I imagine a day when people stop calling themselves poor so that me and you do not even dare to call them poor because they're not poor, they're financially poor. Right? It is people like us who are telling them that you, you don't have, you are unskilled, you are poor, we are the Masihas, we'll do this, right from the governments to the rich people to people like us, everyone is doing that. Right? So the time has come that people stop treating themselves the way they're treating themselves. Okay? And that's where the, I would say that the real awakening will happen. That's where you will have many, many more stakeholders in this entire game. We have no right to call people victim. We have no right to call people poor. I am poorer. I am poorer in so many things. I can't sing. I can't play. I don't know cricket. I don't even know the name of my captain right now. You know, and thus I'm talking about cricket. I'm not talking about any other game. You see? So I'm much poorer in so many. So those, that language has to change and that language has to change at the bottom of it. People need to talk about themselves in a different way. No one should call himself or herself poor or bechara or hame to kuch nahi aata. Aap bataiye hame kya karna hai. You tell us what we want to do. No, enough of that. 
I think that's our deeper journey, which is called Gram Sabiman. It's on the way. Of course, COVID, you know, uh, put a small break in that. But I think the important part for us was to respond to that. And I'm happy that we were able to do a little bit, you know, whatever we were able to do. Thank you both so much, again, for all the great work that you are doing and you continue to do and for spending time and helping the listeners understand a little bit more of the Goon's journey. Nira is very angry. That's what only thing we discuss in diaspora is this. That's the only thing I have to keep my <laughs> wife and my twins angry is the beard. And I have to do nothing. It just grows. That's the beauty of it. And honestly, besides these dumb Zoom things, I don't even have to see myself. So it doesn't really affect me at all. Uh, so the it's anger, for the, the viewing pleasure. Viewing pleasure of other people. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we have to torture other people in our lives again. We're a husband and wife. No, and I was telling her, I was telling her that, listen, he looks so smart because he, his benchmarking became so bad. Exactly. You know? So now, whatever he does, it looks smart. You know, so That's what I tell her. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I also told her. No, no, thank you. I was like, look, you went to Harvard. You're the wise one. I need some gray hair to make me look wise. <laughs> good, thank yeah, you good. both. Thank, thank you, you so much for your thank time. You. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Yeah. To know more about the show, our guests, and their work, go to dasra.org slash ncd. If you like No Cost Extension, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app.